Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and that amazing book, that wonderful book is available to you as an audiobook, as a paperback, but the ebook, oh, esteemed audience, the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Don't worry about me. I'll get your money when you come back for the sequels and some of my other books as well. Uh, and today, because of my guest's newest book has been compared favorably to Watership Down and Plague Dogs by Richard Adams, I will remind esteemed audience of the proudest, probably the proudest moment of my um, uh, literary career, if not an event that you heard on the show, uh, but certainly one of the top top five events of my literary career is that book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, was blurbed by none other than Richard Adams himself. By God, how amazing is that? And hopefully I've impressed my guest to get the conversation going. We're, we're in good shape. For more information about all of that, including an interview with Mr. Rich, uh, Sir Richard Adams himself, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com. More than enough intro. My God, we've got to get started. Anthony McGowan is here. Tony, welcome to the show. Hello. It's uh, great to be here. And I'm amazed that you're, you're, uh, you're buddies with, with the great Richard Adams. That's astounding. I didn't know that at all. I well, like I've now got a connection with him through you. you. Change. <laughs> um, I, I would say we absolutely are our best friends for life. Uh, you have to get his take to see whether he feels the same. <laughs> I think he passed away a year or two ago, so I'm afraid yeah. we'll have to direct our, our thoughts upwards. <laughs> But if there is an afterlife, I'll be sure to, to you know, clear my throat nervously and shake his hand and say, Mr. Adams, thank you again. You, you may remember. And you say, no, I'm afraid I don't, but it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their biography or their book because I'll get things wrong and you'll know I got them wrong and we'll just be sitting here and it'll be awkward. Um, so if you would give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Oh, wow. Well, um, well, there's quite a lot of it because I'm so old now. Um, but just thinking about in terms of my my literary productions, my, my, my books, um, I was trying to count up the other day how many books I've written. And it's it's some I, I lost count somewhere between 49 and 53. So it's somewhere in the low 50s, which is quite quite a lot of books. Too many books, maybe. Um, and in, in that 53, I've written books for adults. I've written adult crime novels and also adult nonfiction. And I've written books for quite small children, you know, picture books. Haven't ever quite written those books, you know, that, that toddlers, that the padded ones that toddlers wipe their drool on. But that might be my destiny one day with a picture of a carrot on every page. Um, but I suppose most of my books are broadly in the YA kind of area. So most of my books are aimed at teenagers. Um, although I've also written at least 15 books for middle grade. So there's essentially nothing I haven't stooped to in my time. <laughs> but it's, it's not the kind of career I thought I would originally have. Um, I spent a lot of time studying at college. I did various degrees. I did a PhD uh, for, for a while. I always thought that my destiny would be to write, um, to, to get a job teaching in a university somewhere and maybe write one um, literary novel a decade. So I never quite realised I'd be a writer mainly for children, churning out book after book after book. Okay, that, that's me, me and my world. Well, I've got, you have such a fascinating background. I've got uh, questions about, about your origin. Of course, we're also going to get into uh, Dogs of the Deadlands, which is uh, was just released here September 13th, esteemed audience. You can pull up Dogs of the Deadlands while we're talking uh, and, and, and get your copy from the library, order it. By God, you're not going to want to miss it. 
Um, but uh, I noticed that you had originally had a PhD in the history of beauty. Is that right? Yes, that, that's right. Yes, it was. My, my background is basically philosophy. Um, and, and so I wrote a, a book about the way in which uh, philosophers and also um, uh, writers wrote and thought about physical beauty, you know, the different kind of philosophical and aesthetic um, ideas get built into that idea of, of physical attractiveness. Now, I mainly looked uh, at literary sources. So there's a chapter on, on James Fenimore Cooper, the great American novelist, uh, other chapters on, on Gothic fiction. And so it, yeah, it, it, not the kind of thing that's particularly useful, <laughs> um, but it, it was a fun thing to study. Well, I saw that and I thought, well, now, if you were a cover artist, that makes 100% sense. <laughs> if yeah, you're writing, I mean, does that give you, uh, if, you if you're writing about uh, the perception of beauty within literature, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess. Um, but, I, you know, it didn't, I, I mainly did the PhD to get myself a job teaching universities. And I had a couple of interviews, blew the interviews, never quite got the job at a university ended up doing that the kind of boring job that every teenager dreads and fears. I kind of, I was actually working for the government as a civil servant uh, in a boring office with a big pile of files and a big book of instructions. <laughs> um, but there, I suppose, because my day job was so boring, it, I felt it, it uh, perhaps freed up my imagination. And so that's really when I started to write creatively, when my, my, my real life was so dull. Well, Maybe that's a common picture yeah. with authors. There's our first tip for writers. Get the most boring possible day job you can. Your imagination will explode. <laughs> well, I do think there's a, you know, if, if you derive a lot of fulfillment from your from your day job, um, th then that, that might suck out some of that creative energy. Um, so if I'd, have, if I'd had a better job, I may well never have written anything apart from the, the terrible adolescent poetry, which is always my, my first love. <laughs> Uh, most writers have got some terrible adolescent poetry someplace. I've got a whole. whole... I guess we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not published. It doesn't need to be. It was enough just to have existed at the time. It's fine. So I had read that uh, prior to nine years old, you're you're not reading anything, and then a teacher gives you a copy of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, well, it's not quite true. That I didn't read anything. I was a typical horrible little boy. That what I cared about was war. Uh, and also animals. So there's my two great loves as a small kid. So I, I read lots of nonfiction. Uh, I mean, I've got somewhere here behind me in my bookshelf is, um, oh, I'll never find it. It's a book called the, the Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats, which is like, you know, the Guinness Book of Records. It's like that, but about animal stuff. So it's got the, you know, the, the, the man-eating tiger that ate the most people. And it's, it's that kind of gory fact. And so my head was full of that kind of material. But I'd never really read any fiction at all until the teacher gave me The Lord of the Rings. And it was so it wasn't even The Hobbit. You know, it was the, 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 the daddy version. And I, because I hadn't really read any fiction, I didn't really know what fiction was. And I had to learn to read fiction and novels through that process of reading The Lord of the Rings. It probably took me three years to, to get through it for the first time. But then for the following years, I, I just used to read it again and again and again and, until I was in my, my mid-teens and I moved on finally. Yeah, so that was always uh, my kind of start in the fictional world. So two, three years, it, it takes you to get through it, but by God, you do it. <laughs> uh, the hobbits, they eat, they walk, they eat, they walk, they sing. And yeah. this, <laughs> at, at, at this point, when does, when does I, I'm imagining you crawling and then starting to walk a little bit and then running because somewhere in there you take off and yeah. uh, go on and you're going to be studying um, the depictions of beauty within fiction uh, yeah. and, and becoming a writer yourself. So when does that click? When does that, that switch flip for you? 
Well, it's interesting. Now, obviously, there's this huge genre of, of, of YA, young adult literature, which is aimed at, the, at teenagers and those a little, little older, but that didn't quite exist in the same way back in the 1980s when I was a teenager. Um, so what I I made the leap from books like The Lord of the Rings to, to the kind of adult fiction that appeals to teenagers. Um, so science fiction, I read a lot of. Stephen King was a very important author to me in, in those formative teenage years. So it's also I read um, uh, J Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two when I was sixteen, which again um, filled my head with these comic potentialities of of, of life. Um, so it was more that kind of the sort of adult fiction that does appeal to teenagers was my next step after that. Gotcha. So that that captures your imagination, lights a little spark that becomes a roaring fire somewhere in there through the teenage years. So that by the time yeah. you get university you're you're more or less all in you're planning to teach and write literary novels right yeah i i, I guess so i guess so <laughs> although it's um i don't know, it's always tempting to try and find those those roots of the current you in in your past um and i just i just don't know to what extent you could have seen me at 16 or 18 or 21 and seen the me at 57 there's so many different paths that one, one might have gone down in life so I, I, I don't know. Also, he was, uh, <laughs> like most adolescent boys, I was fairly, you know, in many ways appalling, <laughs> uh, selfish and egotistical and, uh, you know, monstrous in many ways. Whereas now, as you can see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. <laughs> and we all say that, don't we? <laughs> I think monstrous in many ways is a, is a description that can apply to most teenage boys. <laughs> Certainly me. <laughs> many of many of the teenage boys I was friends with. So there we are. We were monsters together. It was lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm reading your bio and I'm thinking, okay, well this this makes sense. You're writing your 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 terrible poetry. You get turned on to fiction. Yep, that, that all seems straightforward. And then I read, nope, I was also a nightclub bouncer. That's an unusual job. <laughs> type. Yeah, it, it surprises people who meet me now. Um, but it was when I was doing, among my degrees, I was doing a, a master's degree in, at Manchester University, a kind of gritty northern town in England, uh, and uh, not living on very much money. And I just applied for this job at a, at a nightclub. Um, and um, <laughs> I, I didn't quite realize it was going to be a doorman. So did you have the, does a, the term bouncer mean the same in the United States? So it means that the guy on the door. 100% here, it's a, it's a tough guy that will throw you out of the club if you're misbehaving. Yeah, that, 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 that was me, yes. Um, uh, and I was never that tough, but I was quite, you know, quite tall and quite, in those days, quite kind of ripped. Can I say that? <laughs> um, um, but also, so I applied for this job and it was, uh, the salary back then was £10 an hour. This is back in the late 1980s which even now is not a, it's now the minimum wage in the UK is about 10 pounds an hour. So it's a, it was riches back then. And also the, the, the day after I joined as a sort of most lowly bouncer, all the other doormen in the place were, they were headhunted by a better club just a bit further down the street. So I became the head doorman. <laughs> so I got even more money. I was up to 15 pounds an hour there. Um, uh, but also I didn't have to do very much actual brutalization of the customers. I had my, my, my guys I could send in to do the beating up. So that was all quite good as well. <laughs> but yeah, I was never a particularly convincing bouncer. I have to say that. Well, I imagine in some nights you come in, you got an extra bit of extra aggression. Like, you know what? Stand down. I'll handle this one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then something you've been very public about and written about, so I feel it's fair to ask about, is that uh, 1986, at 21, you get diagnosed with testicular cancer. 
Uh, you're told your chance of survival is in the low teens. And of course, I'm talking to you now at 57. So we know that that uh, was not the best. Yeah, I, I made it. But, but also, even even then, um, uh, that was slightly out of date because my, my best friend was a medical student. And so when, when I got my diagnosis, the first thing we did was to look it up in his medical textbook, which was just a couple of years out of date, because just around then they, there was a whole new family of drugs that they found, uh, which which almost in every case cures testicular cancer. Now, um, I was always, luckily, I didn't need the drugs. It, my, my cancer hadn't spread. So I was always in that 10% that would always have pulled through. Um, but so that was, <laughs> but still it's quite, quite, a, quite a bleak moment to, to come across. Um, but yeah, uh, I, you know, so I suppose at the, at the time, um, it, it didn't feel like it affected me that badly. I, I obviously didn't want to die. I liked being alive, but it just seemed to be, you kind of got through day by day. I was only sort of looking back on it years later that I suddenly felt the, I don't know, the, the weight of it. Um, but anyway, you know, it's a, I, I, I got through. <laughs> Here I am, as you said. Well, I'd like to imagine a, a moment like that, because later I know that you're going to go on to have a novel rejected widely and probably have some moments of darkness and despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wonderful world of being an author. <laughs> but you're going to have that. And I imagine that's almost got a pale in comparison. And you've got some perspective on that once you've looked death in the eye. I, I guess, I guess. Um, although it maybe I was saved by my lack of depth. The, the, <laughs> my, my superficiality meant it didn't impact me too deeply. But I suppose, I mean, there is a serious message here, um, which, which is it's one of the few cancers that, that young men get on the whole. We don't get cancer. Um, and if you find it early enough, it's 100% treatable. You know, it's not even just that you slightly improve your chances, that, that, that they cure it. So the key thing is to, you know, adolescent boys out there, well, get, get some proper advice about how to do this, but check yourselves. It's a really important thing. Um, I love that. Didn't have the depth to properly appreciate it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then here is something that that caught my eye because um, I'm happily married. I know you are as well. well I know you're married. I assume happily. Um, but I'm, I'm reading about you, and you've got your first book, uh, Abandoned Hope, uh, is is out there, uh, and it's being rejected. But your wife. Uh, has written a successful novel about the fashion industry. <laughs> got an agent. What kind of impact does that have on a, yeah, American well, publication? It was a very, very strange time. Now I've got to say that I, I helped her a lot with, with that novel, but it's, it's, it's her book. Um, so yeah, all, all of our friends knew that I was the aspiring writer. She was a successful fashion designer. Um, and yet suddenly out of the blue, she gets published <laughs> and, and I don't. So it, it, it did make me appear like a massive loser in the eyes of the world, <laughs> um, quite rightly as I, as I was. Um, but because I suppose that her book was a, almost a collaboration between the two of us. So it was fine in terms of the dynamic of our relationship, but it did, I suppose in, in the world, it, it, it set us off. She's this glorious, beautiful, blonde, successful person. And I'm the, <laughs> I'm the, the hopeless loser in the corner. Um, uh, but then fortunately it wasn't too long before um, I, I got published as, as well, which kind of saved the day from my point of view. In fact, I, I only got published because she did, in a way, because I, I sent out my, my book. Um, it was eventually published as, as, as Hellbent. Um, uh, but um, so it, it, and it, it got the first round universally rejected, not even personalized rejections. It was more dear sir, stroke madam, your, your book, stroke play, stroke poetry collection. So just you know, delete as necessary. Um, but then she got an agent and got published straight away and her agent took pity on me uh, and took me on as well. 
And but actually, even the agent, who's a brilliant uh, agent with William Morris, um, called Stephanie Cabot, um, she couldn't sell Hellbent. I mean, Hellbent's a very strange book. It's about a teenage boy who dies and goes to hell. And it's about his adventures in hell and his memories of, of, of being back on Earth. And it's it's a very, very um, scatological book. It's got lots of what I would call body comedy in it. It's a comedy about hell, essentially, but a kind of gory, filthy book. But it's also a retelling of Dante's Inferno. So it's quite a hard sell. And even with this brilliant agent on board, she couldn't get the publishers to accept it. It was just, it's like nothing else ever written, I think. Uh, that sounds like a bit of a kind of a, a boast there, but there are no other children's books or YA books like, like Hellbent. Um, but so she suggests I write something more commercial. So then I wrote a couple of adult thrillers, first one called Stag Hunt, second one called Mortal Coil, and they, they got published more or less based on the synopsis. So that kind of pulled me out of that, that, that dark place. And then because I was suddenly now a published author, um, rather than this total outsider loser, then other publishers suddenly wanted Hellbent. So, <laughs> so I'm just thinking about your, your listeners, those who are, who are writers out, out there. It'd be very hard to follow my path into publication. And it's, it's always incredibly difficult and strange and you need that coin to come up on the on the right side a few times. But here it was because, you know, I was a failed writer. My wife got published. My wife's agent took me on. She suggested I write something more commercial and all this, you know, series of, 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 of bits of good fortune had the final result of me becoming eventually a YA writer. <laughs> that was a really muddled explanation of my, of my career in uh, early career there. Well, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have asked you about it if, if it just happened a couple of years ago. I know it has a happy ending. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess. You, one multiple. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do love there. I, I love your, your characterization of yourself as the sad loser in your wife's shadow. And I can't imagine your former bouncer at that point. I can't imagine anyone making those comments to your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm in, in the flesh. I'm, I'm, I'm very gentle. I'm a wimp. <laughs> So um, you go on to great success with, with Stag Hunt and then um, uh, eventually uh, Abandoned Hope uh, gets a title change and comes out uh, for the YA market. When, when, when uh, do you feel that the hankering or the desire to write for younger readers? Um, I, I never had a desire to write for younger readers. So when I wrote that first draft of Hellbent, when it was still Abandoned Hope, um, the main character is 16. Um, but the book itself was in my head. Well, you know, I think I'd heard the term YA, but I thought young adults were people like me uh, in, in their 20s. I didn't realise that, that, that young adults were, in fact, teenagers. Um, so I, I wrote it thinking it was for adults. Um, and it was only later on talking to my agent that I realized I could take out some of the profanity <laughs> and sort of re, uh, resituate it as a book more for, for teenagers. So I could, just, just double check. So in, in the US as well, it, is YA essentially a synonym for teenage books or is it wider than that? Um, well, technically, it's a synonym for teenage books, but I think the market is a little bit wider. Certainly, I'm reading them sure. as our oh, other. Okay. <laughs> and we have our new adult, which is, is its own separate thing. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I, actually, I did a talk a couple of years ago at the Edinburgh Book Festival, big kind of festival here in the United Kingdom, um, where there'd just been some research showing that most YA in the UK was bought by women in, who were older than the age of 25. Uh, and I, I thought this was a little bit um, unsettling because you had a big part of what was meant to be children's publishing being read 
and therefore directed towards adults. Uh, and so I, I did a talk at the Edinburgh Festival, um, which became somewhat controversial. I think it's on, online somewhere. Uh, I got quite a lot of, of, of hate back about that. <laughs> um, for, because you know, people who love YA, they really love YA. And often that, that's adults who are passionate about it. And they didn't like that. They thought somehow I was denigrating them or YA by saying they shouldn't read it. I don't know. So anyway, yeah. So but but Hellbent is <laughs> well, is a book, I think, aimed at teenagers. I mean, adults have, have read it, but it's kind of it's really a book trying to make teenage boys laugh and to gross them out. Although the other thing that I, I learned after I wrote it was that, um, of course, teenage boys uh, don't read at all or lots of them don't read. So most of the readers of my YA are, in fact, um, girls, often 12 year old girls who read everything. So, again, it's something I didn't quite know until I became part of this uh, wonderful world of literature that we're in now, you and I. So does that uh, change your perspective a bit when you write your next YA? So I suppose that my my way of answering that is to say that my way into nearly all my YA books is through a first person narrator. And that first person narrator is always a teenage boy in, in my YA books. Um, so that means it's always got, got that kind of colour to it. It's a, a teenage boy's worldview. Um, and, you know, that's for various reasons. Partly I... I I do a first person narrator to get, make sure I'm using the same sort of language that's appropriate to my readers because it's their, their voice. Um, also, I was a teenage boy, obviously, uh, and I, I'm guessing for many of us grown-ups now that those were my most vivid years. Uh, and lots of things happened to me then that burn into my memory. And it's very easy for me to access that world of the teenage boy. Um, almost more easy to, than to access the world of the adult man. <laughs> um, but but so um, what I, so I, you know, I've written books from the perspective of a teenage boy. I've written books from the perspective of an adult man, because I, I am one. I've also written books from the perspective of, from the point of view of an adult female, because most of my friends are adult females. So I can quite easily, again, get into their, their heads. But, but I was never a teenage girl. And apart from my daughter, Rosie, I've never known any teenage girls. Teenage girls always terrified me and mystified me and perplexed me. So I could never write a book from the point of view of a teenage girl. But hopefully my books are interesting to teenage girls because it helps them to access the inside of a teenage boy's mind. Horrible place that it is. <laughs> yes, we, we wouldn't want them to miss out on that. <laughs> I, I did find it uh, amusing because I know the same thing uh, happens uh, to, to a lot of authors that this is a, a book help, um, that, um, that that has, like you say, bodily humor that has some relatively gross stuff in it because, of course, you're, you're touring hell, of course. Mm -hmm. And you're also writing about your own traumatic experiences of, of being um, uh, flat out of, we would call it abused at this point uh, during your schooling years, right? Because you, you had people uh, physically striking you. Well, yeah, I mean, I am. I, um... I went to a very, very tough high school. Um, so I was brought up in the north of England, um, which in a, a kind of industrial city called Leeds for the most part, although actually was most of my childhood was in a small town outside Leeds, but I went to school in Leeds. It's big, I'm trying to think of a city, uh, somewhere like Pittsburgh, perhaps a kind of industrial city. Um, and, and the school I went to was uh, one of the toughest schools in the whole of this very tough town. Um, so there's an awful lot of, of kind of bullying, uh, lots of violence in the air, fights every single break time. Um, and the way the teachers kept control back in those days was also with brutality, lots of corporal punishment in my school. Um, 
but so it, it was a very, very interesting inverted commas kind of place. But I actually didn't have a bad time at that school. I, I, I loved that school um, because although there was violence all around, it never really dragged me down because I was quite a big guy and I was good at sports. Um, so even though I, in some ways I should have been bullied mercilessly because I was just from out of town. So I was geographically an outsider. Um, I, I obviously liked learning things. So I was one of the kids whose hand was always up in class. You know, sir, miss, uh, answering questions. Um, uh, and also, I suppose, compared to some of the other kids there, I was I was quite middle class because um, it was in the middle of a very poor housing estate around it. Uh, now, my parents were both nurses, so not not particularly posh, as, as we'd say at all. But compared to the poor local kids, quite, you know, almost aristocratic. Um, so th th these kind of three, three this kind of triple outside status should have made me a victim. But as I say, I was good at sports. And that took me out of the bullying zone. And so all around me, there was this madness, this chaos, this danger. Um, but I just, I loved it. I surfed it. It's a wave I surfed. Um, so, so yeah, the memories got burnt in, but they didn't burn me in the sense of, of damaging me. I don't think, although we never really know, do we? Maybe I, maybe I am damaged by it all. Well, I mean, it's worked out for you. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it may not be advisable, but you certainly shattered into a successful career. <laughs> so I, uh, I, w w what struck me with uh, people uh, reacting to Hellbound was that you, you have this book with, with literally uh, set in hell, uh, with all of this occurring, and people are, are not, not, not people, some adults are up in arms about the profanity in the book. Yeah, yeah. It still amuses me and also frustrates me because, of course, uh, a teenager who could endure all of that, profanity is the least of their worries, especially in, in a book, right? Exactly. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the book, although it has lots of body comedy and the language is, is <laughs> as you say, quite profane, it's got a moral core. Um, you, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, hidden narrative is that um, my main character, Connor, trying to find out why he, a relatively normal kid, has been sent to hell. Uh, and so there's long debates about the nature of, of good and evil and, and morality. So it's meant to be a moral book, just one with lots of dirty jokes in it. Um, and, and also, as you suggest there, that um, you know, I, I do worry about the amount of, of violence uh, in, in our society um, and the kind of graphic imagery that, that teenagers are, have access to all the time in a way that, that people of my generation didn't. Um, but I, I, and I, I do think that, that um, the stuff you can find online can, 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 can be corrosive to the, that, those young souls. But I don't think literature ever can be. Um, it's just a different sort of experience to read a book than to be confronted with some terrible graphic video. Um, so yeah, that there are, I had to actually write a column years ago for the Guardian newspaper in, in, in the UK about the kind of about would I ban any books? Uh, and it, you know, we're literary, literary people, so I'm guessing that, that you wouldn't want to ban any books. But I did possibly contemplate a couple that I might ban. <laughs> um, I don't know about that in the in in the states, but in, in the UK, if you get a, like a, a serial killer in the UK, they only ever read two books. They read the Marquis de Sade, and they read Nietzsche. <laughs> uh, and, and because because if you're you know if you're that way inclined, then you can find what you want in Nietzsche and the Marquis de Sade. Um, so if I was going to ban anything, uh, I would ban those. But I wouldn't ban those at all because I don't believe in banning books. But no, certainly not my my relatively harmless YA. <laughs> it, 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 I don't think it can corrode the soul of a young person. 
Generally speaking, I'm against book banning, but if we're talking about the collected works of Ayn Rand, I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'd, 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 I'd high-five you there if we were in the same room. <laughs> uh, my worry with that is if we ban her book, somebody who's just a little bit more clever, a little bit more insidious would write those same philosophies in a way that's slightly less laughable, because I yeah. thought there were comedy at one point, and then I realized that so many times, <laughs> at least in America, uh, like uh, Alan Greenspan and others have been in charge of our economy. Oh, they took her serious. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but I, I worry that if somebody were to write some of those same philosophies more clever, then they wouldn't have the same inoculation effect that hopefully if somebody reads Atlas Shrugged at age 17 and becomes a jerk yeah. for a while, uh, yeah. but has that, that theory shot down like, oh, okay, well, now I'm immune to that same silliness creeping in again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Also, if if you ban books, they become more alluring to some people. So you know the fact that they're forbidden makes you want to explore them. So maybe that's maybe I wish I was more banned, so the the kids would seek me out. Well, here's here's hoping. Just stick <laughs> with the profanity. <laughs> um, the books I've written for sort of six year olds and seven year olds, and, and the mid grade books don't have any profanity in. Just to clarify that, it's only my 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 high end YA books that are full of filth. Very true. Uh, in fact, you know what? I've got more questions for you about uh, about some of your middle grade books, but let's dig right in and let's talk about the the new one, Dogs of the Deadlands, which uh, just released here September 13th as you're listening to a esteemed audience. Uh, true to my word, I will not make you sit through me summarizing your book to you and getting it wrong. Uh, so what does esteemed audience need to know about Dogs of Deadlands? Okay. I mean, can I hold it up to the microphone here? <laughs> Would that be useful? Um, it's um, The book begins in 1986. When, as I'm sure your your um, your listeners know, there was this terrible explosion in the Chernobyl nuclear plant in what is now Ukraine, but was the Soviet Union, um, and so this big explosion it contaminated the local area with radioactivity, um, and so the people had to be evacuated, um, but they weren't allowed to take their animals with them. They were told they'd be coming back in a few days, um, and so the the um, there's a kind of human main character in the story who's it's her sixth birthday on the day that the plant blows up and she's been given a pup for her birthday uh, a samoyed puppy um, which may have a little bit of wolf in it but she has to leave her little dog behind behind her um, it's a slightly heartbreaking scene when she has to let go of the dog um, uh, so that that's a kind of human story that then follows Natasha through her life and she's blighted by this experience she's got this hole in her core um, left by this absence of this beautiful puppy. Um, but so, but the, the main narrative follows two generations of dogs um, who are interacting with the local wildlife. So, so when the people moved out of that area, um, the whole area was, was, um, was rewilded. Um, so the people moved out and the, the big fauna came back in. So bison, um, moose, um, wolves, most famously, lynx and bear all came back into these now abandoned forests. Uh, and my story is about how these uh, feral dogs interact with the wolves. <laughs> um, and it's sort of two generations of, of the dogs. You, you, you do find out in the end that, that one generation, the older, the mother is the, 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 the puppy Zoya that, that Natasha left behind. Uh, although the main narrative is about her her offspring. Uh, she's got two, two, two dogs, uh, two puppies. Um, um, called Misha and Bratan, and it's about their struggles to survive in this in this incredible wilderness. And the kind of core of it is about how they try and survive against their. Well, the the, the the dogs are kind of the good guys in the book, 
and the bad guys to begin with are the wolves. Um, so I, I did lots of, of research about, well, uh, both about how feral dogs survive in the wild, uh, but also about wolf and dog interaction, also lots of research about the wolves themselves trying to get it all right. Um, and so from the point of view of the dogs, the wolves are the bad guys. Uh, and a lot of the research I, I, I went into was, um, it was fairly grim. So uh, I didn't quite realize this, but well, you know that, that wolves and dogs are basically the same species. Genetically, they're pretty much identical. They can fully interbreed a fertile offspring, um, but wolves have got various, or dogs rather have lost a lot of those adaptations that wolves have had. So they're, they're weaker, their bite strength isn't anywhere like a wolf. Um, and also with a, in wolf packs, the males play a full role in looking after the puppies, whereas dogs even wild dogs and males don't play any kind of role so there's all, all these adaptations for the wild that, that the dogs have lost and generally speaking when a dog and a wolf meet in the wild it's only got one outcome uh, which is that within seconds I mean, often within five seconds the wolf has killed the dog and then they eat him <laughs> uh, so uh, and the only way in which this doesn't end up badly for the dog is if um is if it's uh, i'm trying to think of the best way to put it if it's a, a lady dog and it's a daddy wolf, um, and they um, and they become romantically attached. <laughs> that's the one time the wolf will not kill the dog. So yeah, so that's a lot of the kind of background to it. Uh, and and so um, the second generation of dogs that we follow in the story are half wolf, and it's about their their, <laughs> their struggles to survive. That was a you, you did a better job of trying to explain what my book was about. But that's basically it in a big cloud. And then so um, the two storylines. Um, finally come back together again when Natasha is reunited with one of the dogs without giving too much away. Did that make sense? <laughs> it's an expansive story. So I'm impressed by the attempt to... <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. So I, I sometimes do, 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 you know, big influence in this book was The Call of the Wild um, by Jack London. Brilliant book, again, about dogs and wolves interacting. And I sometimes say this is like um, Call of the Wild meets um, War and Peace by Tolstoy. Just given that I've got this huge cast of, of characters and this Russian background there. So it's, uh, we mentioned you're a teenager in the 80s. I'm assuming Chernobyl catches, the explosion of Chernobyl catches your um, your imagination just like the, the rest of the world? Yeah, well, it happened when I was actually at university. Um, so I was 21 at the time. And I had a, one of my friends was uh, studying Russian. Uh, in Kiev, which was the nearest big town to, to Chernobyl. Uh, and so, to, so she had to be evacuated. So it was a, a kind of, it had a big impact on, on, on me then. You know, it was that, that kind of big event. Um, also, you know, it came at a time when still the Cold War was in, was in full, full spate. Uh, and so that, that, that nuclear terror that maybe has been, you know, that spectre's rising again because of the, 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 the awful situation in Ukraine now, but that was all the background to that. And then this nuclear disaster, so yeah, it was a really, in many ways, a hot topic back then. And so has this been sort of in the back of your mind that sooner or later I'm gonna write about, about the, the disaster or? No, um, it wasn't in that way, but once the disaster um, happened, um, then you got all this really intriguing stuff to do with the ecology of the place. And because I've always, going back to my early interest in the natural world, um, so that was always my kind of main focus. I saw a couple of brilliant uh, National Geographic documentaries about this rewilding of the area and about the, the, um, the reappearance of the wolves. And so that was, um, I don't know, that, that, that's what really triggered me. There was one amazing scene I saw where there was this wolf pack in the foreground. In the background, you had the ruined nuclear plant 
it just seemed to be a really striking image. And I thought there's a story in this. Then there was a different um, National Geographic story about the surviving dogs. So the, 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 the pets that were abandoned, most of them just died. But the very few that survived, survived by hanging around the nuclear plant where there was still workmen there. Uh, and so it's a dog about a program about those surviving dogs as well. And I brought the two things together. Gotcha. So you see that image and that's in your head for years, months? Um, years, yeah. <laughs> a long gestation period. Um, well, I stress by uh, how long an author's gestation period takes, how, how, how that kernel eventually becomes the, the, the full tree. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but in part of the um, the thing about being a children's writer is that you you have an obligation, I think, to keep on churning out the books. Because if you you know if you're writing for say thirteen year olds uh, and you take five year old five years over a book, then your thirteen year olds are eighteen, they're too old to read your book. So I do feel this pressure to to, to produce, uh, and so I've often got you know two or three books on the go at the same time. There'll be the one that I'm actually writing then in the back of my mind, there'll be the one that is gestating, to use that word again. Uh, and so this one was gestating for a long time. Probably I, I was probably wrote 10 books while I was still thinking, sometimes subconsciously, about Dogs in the Deadlands. Got you. Uh, and then um, you have uh, said that this, this book, Dogs of the Deadlands, has been your biggest ever writing challenge. I'm assuming until the, the next one, but as of, uh, as, as of your uh, writing... I, I will never write a book like this again. It's been too much of a challenge. It's broken me. <laughs> well, how, how did it break you? What was so challenging? Well, um, okay, partly, you know, my, my modelled explanation of the, of, the, of the story earlier, I might give an indication. There's a lot happening in this story. Um, the, the two different storylines of, of the dogs and the human, uh, just that was quite hard to, to encompass. Um, but just purely that the, the timeline was fantastically complicated, trying to get an, an, you know, a, a human growing from childhood to adulthood and the two generations of the dogs. It was just viciously complicated. And I know there are um, there's different types of writers. There are the, the planners and then there are the, the, the pantsers is that the, the the term that I've heard people just do it by the, on the seat of their pants, um, by the seat of their pants. But I always, historically, I've had an idea for a story and I've just started writing it. And I, I don't do any planning at all. I know roughly the shape of it, but I just start start typing. And basically I write the first draft. And that's kind of what gets published. But with this, I had to really plot it out in intense detail. So with the post-it notes all over the wall and different apps, I tried to help me plan it. And it was still really hard to make those two timelines work. Had to do a little bit of stretching and compressing, um, so that that was a it was a kind of intellectual challenge that was different to my normal writing challenge, which is just to find the best words to, to for, for my ideas. Here it it was um, logistical almost, <laughs> uh, and it was just really really hard. Um, and, and so this book went through as well many more drafts than most of my books. I mean, usually the the, the when I finish my first draft, what's published is ninety nine percent the same with a you know, few corrections whereas this the first draft was probably only 50 percent there it was just a terrible terrible mess and also there, there were uh, even more digressions uh, huge great bubbles that came off from the main storyline um which I, I don't know if you find that and to me or your, your writer listeners but often the the digressive bits were some of the best writing <laughs> but because they didn't work to move the plot forward they had to be um, cut away, which is always always brutal and hurts. 
killing your darlings. Do you save your darlings for use elsewhere, or at least <laughs> maybe they'll be used? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, I, 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 well, the, I mean, the, the two big bits that had to go were it's a whole self-contained bit set in the Second World War about the partisans and, 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 the, and the Germans fighting in the same around the same area, which also involved wolves, and another part set during the um, Afghan War. Um, so that they are, I, I'm going to try and do something with them. Uh, or is that too cynical? But I, I hate wasting words. Do, do you hate the, the whole idea of spending an hour of your life writing a perfect sentence and then for it to never be used is, is heartbreaking. Ah, my longest novel never got published, but it did get far really? out and became three other novels. So that's uh, fine. Okay. <laughs> so parts of it got renewed. Parts of it were beyond redemption and and, and they sit on the hard drive where they belong. And then yeah. I pile of darlings I've cut from manuscripts with the promise that one day this will be useful to you and most of the time it's not but I feel so much better it's not it's not gone <laughs> it still exists I didn't use my time and I did okay. uh, writing those darlings enables you to, to finish the overall narrative and however yeah. it's there if you get there that that's victory right yeah true 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 but I just but maybe because of my my lower middle class background I have a hatred of waste so I had a sudden memory then of my um my, my, my dad uh, basically all his meals were made from the leftovers from all our one of five children, so he just literally scrape all our leftovers onto his plate, and that was his dinner. And I actually found that I, I, when my children were younger, I did that as well. I literally inherited that habit of just eating leftovers, almost the garbage. And I, maybe I think about writing as a similar process of eating it. No, that's a terrible metaphor. It's not like that at all. But I still hate hate waste. <laughs> You know, I wondered about that because I saw that um, uh, you described yourself as, as, as being very working class, uh, one of five children as a, as a child. Then I saw both your parents are nurses. And here in America, where we do medicine for profit, if you can't afford it, you die. That's how we do it here. Um, a nurse is actually a pretty good position. You could have a nice house. You could have, you know, maybe seven children. Yeah. All right. Was that just a different situation? Different. So, but even though it's quite interesting. So um, brief tangent here. Um, there's almost a cliche that, that writers often inhabit this sort of liminal space in between different worlds. Uh, and that's certainly true about, about me, both sort of geographically, you know, I was brought up in the north of England. I now live in the south in London. So I'm splitting my, um, my I went to school in the big city, but my home was in a small town. So I had a bit of kind of rural and urban kind of thing going on. Uh, but also in the UK, exactly at that kind of interface between working class and lower middle class <laughs> so I span both of those kind of kind of worlds but I mean definitely here well nurses were not very well paid but they had a big pension so you kind of were, were <laughs> you, you, you scraped by when you were working but afterwards when you retired then it was relatively easy but also um, my mum and my dad both come from families where lots of them but their siblings were nurses and many of them moved to America um, and became nurses in, in, in the States or, or Canada, where exactly as you say, they, they, they simply had a much better standard of living, much better life. Um, ah, there you go. Oh, you so I still got numbers oh, while you're that... Then when you retire, it's all stakes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to, it's like trying to remember my, my, how many books I've written. Um, I was trying to count up my cousins. Um, and I've got, I've got over 50 first cousins. Uh, and I think probably 25 of those are in scattered around America and Canada. So <laughs> I do feel linked with your glorious country for all its all its faults. <laughs> oh, I, I uh, 
criticize it because I love it. And oh, cool. uh, so cool. she'll visit the cousins. She'll do the book tour. <laughs> uh, you'll be around. It'll be a good time. <laughs> so um, well, I wanted to talk a, a bit about your writing process with the time that we have left. So I, maybe this is a bad book to, to take as, as typical, but you say you at any given time, you've got about three books that you're working on so what does your writing day look like of those three projects which one do you do you do you do into or do you do work a little bit on all three throughout the day uh, well you know I, I tend to um i tend to have one that i'm focusing on uh, and then one that i'm that's that's so again that, and, um so maybe I, I, I was slightly um misleading there when i was saying i'm working on several at the same time so several out in a year so I'll go straight from one project onto the next, uh, rather than literally writing them all at the same time. I, I just don't think I could do that. Um, so I'll have one, one every day, one that I'm thinking about in the back of my mind, and then the, the one before that, the one after that will have, you know, be kind of crammed together. Um, but uh, but my, my oh, that, this is my, now this room here that we're in, uh, it's the smallest room in our apartment. It used to be my daughter's bedroom, but when, you know, the whole kind of, my wife got my study I got the smallest room um so I, I don't really like working here but when I can I go to work uh, in the British Library which is the beautiful big library in in, in London here which feels like the, the kind of place where where creative acts get done so it's a wonderful place to work so I try to almost in a in the sense of like going to an office I try to go there most days um bring my my computer my packed lunch and I I, I work uh, and if I'm if I spend a day there, I'll write always a minimum of a thousand words. I feel that's kind of basically my my, my day done. On good days, I might write three thousand. Um, bad days, sometimes nothing comes out, as, as you know. Um, but so yeah, this, I've kind of avoided the question about process by talking about location. So for, for me, the most important thing is to get there in this almost neutral space. With my computer open and make my make my fingers, uh, and then then it kind of happens. That's a terrible well, description of writing, wasn't it? Public space. Somebody <laughs> probably recognizes you and, and says, "Oh, that's Tony." I should go uh, talk to him. Like, uh, last book. Um, you know, I, 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 I love to read, and there there's an author. So <laughs> I, I, I dream of being recognized. No, I, I'm not that kind. Of, I've got quite a few friends that that work in the British Library as well, so they recognize me most of the time. Uh, but I'm afraid I'm, I'm not quite J.K. Rowling. I'm not quite <laughs> recognizable in that sense. Good. Apparently, that kind of success can lead to monstrousness. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and now I've alienated our British listeners. I apologize, J.K. Rowling. I've got my Harry Potter figurines right up here. I love Harry Potter. All right. Yes. <laughs> I see. Gilbert's pretty good too. Uh, so what's pretty good too? The book. I hear bad things. Maybe I'll get to it. Maybe I won't. The uh, criticizing yeah. the internet. Oh, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> but we were talking about you there in the library. Uh, you're working. So you pop in earbuds and 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 block out the world, or do you want to hear people yeah. or in shop? And, Sometimes. And, and... I mean, what I tend to do is I I will have a burst of, of creativity. Um, that might take half an hour, then I'll sit back and, and look at the world. So the, the beautiful thing about this library is it's a huge place. There's always something interesting to look at if you want to. It's full of kind of eccentric old researchers um, with, um, you know, cleaning their ears with tissue or blowing their nose and looking at it or, <laughs> or staggering around. So kind of quasi-tramp-like people, uh, as well as kind of young people they're studying. So there's something to just divert the eye for a minute. And then you get back into, into the work again. 
So it tends to be that that that, um, that oscillation between the intense, fre frenzied, only I, I type with two fingers, kind of a learn to touch type, pounding away and then relaxing for a while, looking at the world, um, spending a lot of time thinking about my, my my packed lunch at lunchtime. So I go out in the courtyard. And you know how you get when you're you kind of get slightly bored when you're when you're working sometimes. And so you your lunch acquires a, a special importance to you. Um, so that's a that's a thing. Sure. Maybe you got a bunch of words that day. Maybe you got none. But by God, lunch will happen. <laughs> <at the end. laughs> um, two fingers, huh? You sent almost 40, 49, almost 50 books now. All the yeah. two you know, after I finish each book, I think, okay, I'm going to use the next little space, free time to learn how to touch type. And I just never do. I think I'm too old now. It's um, also I make a terrible, really loud, often I'm, people ask me to be quiet. I'm just typing too loudly with my, with my two fingers, but it would much better. Are you a proper touch typist? Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's insane. That's it, it, almost, I reckon, my top tip for writers. Learn to touch type. Your life will be so much easier. <laughs> I had to think for a moment there, do I want to hold myself up as a hallmark of great typing? No, but can I do it? Yes. <laughs> well, at least it means, so, so well, you've got to so be this, with two fingers. Yeah, this is a slightly boring, boring point there, but um, so when you're touch typing, you're looking at the screen. So you're seeing the words emerge, whereas I'm just looking at, the, at my at my keyboard. So often I'll, uh, you, know, you look up and suddenly you, you find you've had the, the, the caps lock on. And so you've got to get rid of it. You know, it's all in capitals or just you've written gibberish. <laughs> Autocorrect has changed it to something that you didn't really want. So it's just a laborious thing then to go back and have to edit your, your, your poor typing. So yeah, learn to touch type, guys. That's what I would recommend. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to learn. I'm, I'm going to learn. If you talk to me in a, in a year about my next book, I, I promise I will have learned to touch type. Are you happy now? <laughs> no, I'm not. You're going to sit down and you're not going to be able to write a word. I will have disrupted your entire process. Don't do it. This is working. <laughs> No, I frequently joke on the show, as soon as I have uh, two successful authors telling me we do the exact same thing, the same way every time, and we're always successful, I'm throwing out everything I do and I'm doing that, but it hasn't happened yet. So this is, <laughs> this is, this is your way to, to, to be successful. So um, does that, 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 um, have you tried writing by hand? Does that speed the process? Oh, no, I just don't think I've got the motor skills anymore. You know, occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll do events where I'm going to sign, a, you know, 50 books or so. At the end of that, my whole arm swells up. I, I, I couldn't write a, write a book by with a, with a pen these days. I, I don't know any, any writers of my generation that, that use um, a, a pen and paper anymore, I don't think. Um, you know, I don't even make... Well, I, I, I occasionally I, I've got a little notebook, but... Um, even notes, I tend to use a computer. Um, but so I was, again, I was kind of pondering my, just as I was talking there, my um, my, my process. Uh, I'm trying to work out what, what it is. I suppose what, what normally happens with most of my books is that I get a little flash. Um, so with Hellbent, just a little idea was teenage boy dies and goes to hell. And then the book is, and everything I need is contained in that seed. And just the writing is just essentially expanding on that initial idea and that's all i need um so uh and it's basically then just a matter of me literally starting the beginning and, and typing out that story or <clears throat> my, my absolute favorite book that i wrote i wrote a book called uh, hello darkness uh, which is about a teenage boys at a school where they have animals like school pets and the school pets are being murdered 
uh, one by one. And my my narrator Johnny's always around when the when the school pets being murdered. So he gets he's got to find out he's get, he gets the blame for it. He's got to find out who's really killing the school pets. Uh, and about halfway through the story, you realise that he stopped taking his medication. Um, so he's got quite severe um, mental illness. Uh, and for that point on, you never really, you don't quite know what's really happening in the school and what's happening in his imagination. Um, <clears throat> and, and so uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of, it's a, pa a pastiche of, of, of noir fiction, um, but also a story about mental illness. And so there again, my, <clears throat> my the, the initial seed was, um, just this, almost a, a line in my head, he stopped taking his medication. And then the rest of the story kind of fell into place around that. So that's my, my normal process is that, that little idea that somehow as within it, both the characters and the, and the world and the plot and writing is just after that, almost dictation for me. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Um, well, thinking about uh, characters and um, uh, here uh, recently on, online, which sometimes feels like real life, but isn't, um, but it, it seems like uh, there's been an overwhelming emphasis on authenticity, on, on, on <clears throat> writing only a character that could possibly be you, which is yeah. not boring. Esteemed That's audience, terrible. I've seen everything interesting in my life on this show. I don't have anything else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you have written uh, about a character with mental illness. You've written about uh, an obese teen who goes to Vatso camp, a uh, whole, whole trilogy. You, um, um, and, and based on a conversation, I'm assuming that you don't have much experience having been obese. Um, I mean, what was your poor father? Yeah. There have been no leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I became relatively obese in, in, in my old age. I, I'm actually on a, on a pretty rigorous diet. I, I suddenly, I, I hit... Um, 100 kilograms but what would that be in in american money um you, you know uh, overweight and so i am um, i've been trying to trim down a bit i suddenly found that i i didn't fit any of my trousers anymore so it's a it's an economical thing i had either buy new trousers or lose a few pounds <laughs> so we've done that route but so no i suppose what i um most of my um characters as i say are kind of first person uh, well, most of my books are first person narratives and as long as i can get into that that head then I'm fine. Uh, but I, I think I do need, I completely take your point about the, the I think that the glory of writing diverse characters. Um, but for, for me, kind of a Venn diagram like effect, I, I need some connection with me. So yeah, I wrote about an obese teenager, um, but he was, there was enough of an overlap with my own world for that to be fine. I can make the small leap then into, into that, that obesity. Um, same with, with mental illness. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't have paranoid schizophrenia, but like many of us, I, I've, I've um, struggled with, with, with mental health in my life. So there's enough overlap there to, to make that connection. But also, it, as well as being a, a teenager with mental health issues, he's still a teenage boy. So there's enough of that core there as well. So for, for me personally, because of that, that whole way into the book and the writing first person narratives, I think I do feel to need, I need a connection. Um, so I, I don't think I could write um, uh, about a, a black kid in inner city London. They're just you know, being brought up now. I just haven't got that, that overlap with, with that character. Now, I, I'm delighted for other people to, to do that. Um, but for me, I, I need, I need a, a tether between me and that character. But, you know, but I have written from a female point of view. Um, and I, I've written from um, many animal points of view. 
that is <laughs> thinking so, from the person perspective of a wolf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you, um, you have your dog there at the house? I'm assuming you do obviously lots of research, but how, how do you pitch yourself in the head of, I mean, obviously, ultimately, this is a book that's going to be enjoyed by humans. Uh, if, if you could actually communicate with a wolf, they might read your book and go, no, that's not it at all. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, since that's not, that's not a possibility, how, how do you get your, your, yourself in the, in the head of a wolf character? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, in the whole, I mean, this is partly in the broad genre of animal fantasy. And within that broad genre, you've got books like Call of the Wild. Um, where, where the, the animals are, are depicted realistically. Um, then you have books like Watership Down, where the, the, you know, it's rabbits, but they basically speak like people. <laughs> um, so, or, or a book like War Horse by Michael Morpurgo, where they, it's a book I particularly dislike. Is, it, is Morpurgo a big writer in America? Or it is huge really, here. I haven't read him. Uh, okay, he's huge here. But uh, anyway, his animals are like Socrates. <laughs> They're almost infinitely wise and eloquent. Um, so but there's, so there's that, that genre of animal fantasy where the animals are kind of people. Uh, and then you've got the Call of the Wild where the animals are realistically depicted. Uh, and I'm much, this, this book's much nearer to the Call of the Wild. Um, so it's not a first person narrative from in, in the head of the dogs, but it's a close third person. So I follow the dogs very closely. Um, and they don't speak. Um, other than um, occasionally I'll translate a bit of dog language into human words. So a word like, you know, stay or no or danger. <laughs> um, but but they don't speak eloquently, you know, in, in philosophical kind of terms, the way that some authors have their animals speak and think. Um, so, and yeah, so to get into that world, it, you know, I, I did a vast amount of, of really interesting research about the world of, of dogs and wolves, uh, about the, the, the language, um, about the pack interaction um and i, I found I, I really enjoyed that part that that aspect of the research it, it was fascinating plus i have a dog <laughs> and um and and you know we we, we, uh, we, we we you love your animal and you kind of in some ways anthropomorphize them but occasionally you take a step back and study them as as animals and watch the exact kind of the interactions between dogs and the, the different types of body language so a lot of that went into the book as well um so yeah, so, so I suppose it's um, the, the way I got into the head of the dog was by very closely examining the outside of the dog. <laughs> so looking at their, their behavior rather than trying to get them their, their mental processes. But also um, th having said that I've tried to avoid anthropomorphizing them, uh, at the same time, there, there are human elements to their thought processes. <laughs> um, you, you know, you're, you're I, I, I want the, the readers to feel very close to these these canine characters, and that does involve, to an extent, making them slightly more human than perhaps um, um, nature would allow. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got about writing uh, animal characters or any animal uh, animal character or any any type of character that's not human. Uh, was from science fiction author Hugh Howie. Been on the show twice, esteemed audience. Go check the back end one. Uh, but he talked about writing about aliens. And he said there's a danger in making them so alien that we can't relate to them. And since the aliens, so far as we know, aren't reading the book, we better concentrate on our primary <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice, yeah. But also, um, well, I suppose that the, as I said, the, the, to begin with, the wolves are, are the bad guys here. Um, 
I mean, later on, um, there's a kind of coming together of the wolves and the dogs. And so you see it more from their point of view. Um, but, but you know, often, um, certainly in Europe, I'm guessing in America as well, um, is a tendency to romanticize wolves because they are this incredibly impressive species, uh, intelligent, um, complex, a really keystone species in lots of environments. Um, but, but the life of the wolf is, is brutal. Um, you know, the, the commonest way for a wolf to die uh, is to be killed by other wolves, <laughs> uh, uh, killed and, and generally eaten. Um, so, you know, wolf packs can be brutal places. Uh, and so I did want to get some of that brutality and that nature red in tooth and claw aspect in, into the book as well. I'm sure I had another point there. What was I trying to say? Um, yeah, yeah, about how, um, so yeah, the, the wolves to begin with are very much the other. Uh, that uh, whereas the, the dogs are kind of the us in, in, in that in that that world. Of course, I know because I listened to you uh, talk to the BBC uh, that you believe that we're all kind of the villains sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's clearly that that huge um, impulse that, that we have to see ourselves as um, but uh, as the heroes of our own narrative. Uh, and that that hero figure for most of us is going to be a a goodie, <laughs> and so we, we you know we we tend to uh, only really see our good points and are blind to our bad points, and, and also the fact that you know in our in our narrative, those who who get in our way, we tend to see them as being the baddies, the antagonists, and in some way contaminated by the kind of evil that's the opposite of our good. Um, but I, you know, I do think if you objectively look at our own lives, um, there comes a moment when you you can stand away from that 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 worldview in which you're the hero and see yourself in your true light, and it's not always flattering. So yeah, I do think about two or three occasions in my own life where um, I, I was the bad guy. Um, you know, I'm thinking about more about when I was a teenager um, in that relatively brutal school environment. Um, where no, look, looking back now, I feel nothing but shame. Now, I suppose I've, I've, I've I mean, there's two or three events, one of which I talked about in, in, in that um, that BBC talk. Um, where looking back now, I, I'm, I'm almost thinking that maybe part of my uh, literary impulse has been to atone for some of those sins. So a lot of my books focus on on bullying and power relations in school. Um, uh, and, and trying to find a, a way out of those those confrontational situations, uh, and maybe it is a, a sense of shame about the fact that uh, the th some of the things that I did. Actually, even, even more than things I personally did, one of the reasons I feel really strongly about this is that I, I wasn't really bullied at my school, um, but I didn't quite have enough status or strength of character or courage to stand up for the other kids who were bullied, and it was happening all around me. I never quite made that that sacrifice or that commitment to try and help others uh, and now it's my biggest regret in my life that I never quite had that that um that 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 genuine heroism to, to step in back then have I revealed too much my rationalization and you tell me why it's a bad fig leaf <laughs> but <laughs> when I think of some things that I, I did when I was when I was younger that I'm not particularly proud of I think well uh, one, I think anytime I, I imagine I find the person who I think I've wronged and I say, this is the worst thing I ever did. And I apologize. I always imagine there's somebody else standing right behind me watching this in horror saying, you think that's the worst thing? You did? <laughs> the thing you did to me? Oh, my God. Um, but I also imagine that um, if you grow up 
one, your brain's not fully formed in your teenage years. You haven't had the life experiences that you do have now looking back and, and realizing all the things that had to happen. And also the world has changed dramatically in some ways, um, just in the access to information that we have now, the, the easier way it is, uh, it is to see true north. So when I look back and I think, well, that was a decision clearly made out of ignorance, but is it a decision that was made by the vast majority of people in that same circumstance at that time? Yes, it was. Does that make it right? No. But do I get a little bit of leeway for not being the one perfect person that stood up against the, the, the massive onslaught? Or is that a bad rationalization and I just need to do my best to, to make up for it going forward? Uh, wise words, either way. Yeah, no, it's a brilliant way to look at it. Um, I suppose looking at back to my, my dogs and my wolves, um, maybe another reason why I was drawn to writing YA um, and, and setting books in particular in, in that, that school environment is that there, from the point of view, from your point of view, the bullies are, are the bad guys, um, almost in a, in a kind of, you know, the cowboy in the black hat kind of, kind of sense, obvious and that, that that's quite a powerful thing to get in a narrative but also what i try to do in a lot of my my books is to show that um so from the point of view of the bully person the, the the bully is straightforwardly evil but trying then to get an understanding later on about what made that bully the person he or she is uh and then perhaps you get a kind of a thesis antithesis synthesis kind of thing going on there that there comes to be some kind of understanding because now as an adult i obviously know that um that if you've got a, a kid behaving badly at school, it's almost certainly because they're the product of these terrible events in their own life, um, the things that, that, that formed and shaped them. <laughs> you know, but if you're some poor little 12-year-old nerd getting <laughs> the, 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 the heck kicked out of them by a bigger kid, you don't think about that. But in fact, that's the kind of broader reality there. So I have tried to get that broader understanding in, in, into a lot of my books. Ah, it's a forever gray area, I feel, and you would know better than I uh, with your background in philosophy, because, of course, if we go too far, well, can't we ever hold anybody accountable for anything? <laughs> it's all society. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's, this is it's another whole podcast about, it, about about the nature of free will and, uh, and, and ethics, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to solve it all right here today. <laughs> Knock that out. <laughs> well, esteemed audience uh, has patiently waited because they know I ask every guest who comes on the show, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't disappoint them. Have you ever seen a ghost and/or a flying saucer? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, no, um, to, to to both. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I'm, um, I suppose I, I am a, a, a rationalist to my core, um, but I, I want there to be ghosts. Because if they if they really are ghosts, everything's possible. Um, so I, I, ho I hope that that one day I, I will. <laughs> um, I suppose that there are, I mean, there are ghosts in that our, our lives are often haunted by people who are gone, in that metaphorical sense. You know, I, I lost both my parents over the past couple of years, um, and and yet their their presences are still real to me. Um, I know that's not not what you mean by by, by a ghost, but there's that that resonance that, that a character has still in my world. Um, so I certainly believe that in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, again, the, the, the flying saucers and the, um, and the kind of whole issue of, of alien life. Um, I've got this terrible, terrible feeling, you know, um, that we're alone. So I remember, um, I know it, it, it seems almost impossible that it's vast cosmos, but I remember um, watching, there was a really good science program years ago 
looking at the chance of, 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 of intelligent life. Um, and what they decided was looking at all the possibilities of the vast um, scope of the universe, um, that it's probably the case that there is intelligent life, but only probably. <laughs> and there's that chance that there isn't. And if there is, why don't we know about it? Why haven't we heard the, um, the radio waves? Why, why, you know, why is, why is there just that, that terrifying silence out there? So my, my fear is, you know, it's just us, which is a huge burden, a huge responsibility. But I hope, I, again, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> Although well, I, I did, um, uh, sorry, I, I, I read the, um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, the three body problem. Now, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of the, 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 the brilliant Chinese author. It's just embarrassing. Um, but do you know about the three body problem? I think they're in the process of making it into a huge Netflix series. It was. Sent, uh, beg your pardon? I said, yes, it was. Uh, okay. Um, so um, there, his fundamental argument is that if there is um, life out there, um, then they're going to try to destroy us, just simply based on the logic of the fact that they might fear that we might destroy them. And so there's this huge impulse <laughs> to, to get the first shot in to destroy the alien civilization. So maybe we should hope there's no one out there. If there is. Well, I thought that argument sounded like bullies thinking, "Oh my God, yes." <laughs> but just if you've got some respo some responsible world government, and if there's let, let's say um, you encounter a world and there's a one in a hundred chance that they might want to destroy you, wouldn't it be the job of our responsible government to blow them up first? That that's the argument behind the three body problem, and that once you've got that, and if if if, if we think that. They're going to think that about us. So everyone's going to try and find the other civilizations and obliterate them. It's a cheery way to end our, our podcast, isn't it? With that prospect <laughs> of utter annihilation. So, that's a, in, in, so that was a terribly serious response to the lovely question. Of, I, you know, I hope there's friendly aliens and I hope there are ghosts, but I've seen no evidence of either so far. Maybe I'll be one one day and I'll, I'll, I'll come back and haunt your podcast. No, you'll haunt another planet where there are aliens. Just, like, oh my God, my afterlife is so rich. So much to learn. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll ask a, a cheerier question. I'm fascinated by this idea of you're in an author's cricket club. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know to what extent cricket as a sport uh, <laughs> as a, means anything to, to you over there. Are you, are you a cricket fan? Uh, no, but in all fairness, every time I watch football, which is a huge American sport, my wife has to explain to me the rules again, and I still reading my book, and I look up once to tell me. <laughs> well, I suppose I mean cricket's more like, more like baseball, um, but it's like a you know the international cricket match they call a test match. They last five days, so you imagine one baseball match lasting five days, uh, and filled with arcane rules and rituals. But yeah, so it's a it's a. English sport played actually around the world, mainly the former British Empire. So India, Pakistan, Australia all play cricket. Um, but it's um, I, I suppose like like any any great sport like baseball. When you're when you're playing cricket, you're in that moment. All that exists is this particular cricket match, hitting the ball, taking the catch, um, and it's a brilliant way of of, of um, obliterating all those other problems in the world. You're not worrying about about Putin and Ukraine. You're not worrying about your own next book contract. All you're thinking about is, can I catch this ball? Or can I not get out to this, this, this bowler? Um, so it's a wonderful way of escaping the world. Whilst also, um, again, the, the, the terrible thing about cricket is it's a game basically built around failure. <laughs> 
So you're always on, on the brink of failure when you're playing cricket. So it's a kind of depressing game in that sense. And it's, it's very seldom that you don't end, uh, end a cricket match in a state of, of near total despair. Uh, <laughs> but then also you have the, the camaraderie, the friendship to get, get you through. So it's, it's a beautiful escape from cricket. So, 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 sorry, from writing and the world. Uh, but also because it's a, it's a team full of authors, uh, <laughs> um, it's, you're still in that world of literature. Although, interestingly, um, when we're together, uh, so that everyone's a published author. We've got quite well known historians and novelists, um, you know, every genre you can imagine. Um, but when we when we get together to um, uh, talk over the match afterwards in the bar, <laughs> you know, what we talk about is not on the whole. It's not books and literature. It's cricket. So we we focus on that because that's our, our area of overlap. So there must be an American baseball writers team. You'd have thought. Oh, yeah, uh, there, there is. I just don't happen to be in one. So I was <laughs> with other authors, but not just talking about all the neurotic things that go into the <laughs> yeah. but focusing on, 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 well, apparently the absolute despair of, of your sport. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, it's really interesting that, that baseball has produced many great novels, or at least two great novels that I, I know of, um, and lots of great literature. Whereas cricket, there's, there are no great cricket novels. Although lots of writers have played it, but there's something about cricket itself which doesn't doesn't um, open itself up to literature in the way that baseball seems to. I, I don't know why that is. There must be some kind of reason for it. I think like we've mythology, mythologizing uh, novel or, or two novels. <laughs> now it's going to have to be. <laughs> Maybe there's a wide opening in the market. You're the guy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I'm, da I'm I'm unlikely to crack America with my novel about cricket though. <laughs> There are cricket fans here. I just don't happen to be one. Oh, sure. But like I say, it's not personal to against cricket. It's all sports that I, I have more or less an aversion to. Uh, <laughs> My loss. Well, sp sport ruins your life. You're better off without it. <laughs> yeah. This has been an absolute privilege and a, and a pleasure. I know I could keep you talking uh, just forever because I have, I have so many more questions for you. But I have absolutely uh, loved our time together. And I've got one last question for you. We'll, we'll, we'll end on this. Um, and that is, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have made a, a significant difference and given yourself some advice that would have made easier your path and might make easier the path of everybody who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Oh, God, that's a brilliant question, almost impossible to answer. Because um, what I, I do believe is that, 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 that just chance plays a role in your career as an author in the way that it doesn't with almost any other career. You know, if you want to be a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer, the harder you work, the better you'll do. And with us, it's slightly different. You need that, that the right person on the right day who's looking for a, a book a bit like yours uh, and, and you, you know, you've got a manuscript ready, ready to go. Um, so I, I just, I'm not sure I, I could. Um, I suppose that, well, it's maybe answering a slightly different question. Um, looking back, the time in my career that I actually most loved writing was back before I got published. When back then I was writing um, partly just for the love of it, uh, partly just to express these ideas in my head, partly with a kind of vague hope about one day being published. And so back, back then um, in my, throughout my, my twenties really, and, and actually early thirties, then writing was a joy. Um, it, it was my, it's my hobby. And I occasionally talk about writing as a hobby and, and, and some writers don't like the idea that it makes it seem, it devalues it. But a hobby is a thing you do purely for the love, not, not for the money. You know, you don't do a hobby because you get paid for it. Uh, and so I almost want to go back to that time when writing was just the thing I did for the joy of it, 
rather than now where it's it's my job. I'm like a, a lawyer, you know, as I said, going to the office every day and hammering out my uh, my, my, my work. So, okay, so maybe now trying to turn that that vague woolly statement into a bit of advice it's try and keep that that joy that 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 sense that you're writing because you love writing and that that just that exuberant sensual enjoyment of language try and keep that 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 child alive in you i think that's the perfect note to end on where can esteemed audience find you online follow you on social media and all that good stuff yeah i i i tweet quite a lot my, my my home actually has been facebook so i actually i i, I do um, i spend far too much time off i know it's a, a facebook is for the old guys like like me the old people um i actually i i, I use that as a, a kind of writing practice in a way i'd often try out comic ideas or um or even po my, my, still my terrible poems i actually i published a book called the art of failing a few years ago which is based on my facebook posts because when i sort of downloaded it all i had i had something like a million words on facebook <laughs> And so every day I tried to post something kind of quirky or funny or silly. So Facebook's probably the best way to get into my into my head. So friend me up on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. I know I'm too old for Instagram and TikTok or, or all those other things. I'm too old for that. But yeah, follow me on those. I will send you a Facebook request shortly. Oh, that'd be brilliant. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be friends for life. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say how much I've enjoyed this, this, this talk? I'm sorry I've been kind of waffling and digressing too much, but it's been a, a joy chatting to you. It's absolutely uh, charming and um, and a pleasure. And I think that esteemed audience has, uh, in between the, the bits of comedy, uh, sussed out some writing gold and, and learned a few things. And everybody's going to buy their copy of uh, Dogs of the Deadlands available now. Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, for um, more information about uh, me, but more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, authors, editors, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, blurbed by the amazing Sir Richard Adams, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.